This is a strange journey. Where we're headed is not yet clear. For the community to carry on, change is the new normal and being adaptive is the only strategy that works. Those words, true today, could have been written about the communities described in the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of a people of faith struggling to keep up with the Holy Spirit in rapidly changing and unsettled times. This fall, we pastors of Second Presbyterian Church are offering a sermon series on Acts called Catching Up with the Spirit. We invite you to join us during this season of change as we seek guidance from the text to follow God's lead, trusting God continues to work in, through, and alongside God's people to bring healing and wholeness to everyone. Join us as we seek to catch up with the Spirit. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that your living word, the word of your spirit alive and moving among us, might reach us, might reach us through scripture and sermon, might reach us and lead us, both within these walls and beyond them, as we seek to keep up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you heard, we're having a sermon series on the book of Acts. Well, our passage this morning is the very first chapter of the book of Acts. Kind of sets the stage for the whole rest of the book. Listen for the reading of verses 1 through 14, and listen for the word of God. In the first book, Theophilus, the book of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day that he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing up toward heaven, and suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking toward the heavens? This Jesus, whom has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went into the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. 
All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember losing my red balloon. Many children have had this experience, but it made enough of an impression on me that the memory has stuck. The helium-filled balloon was given to me as a parting gift. I can't remember where. Maybe it was at a church event or at a department store or, I don't know, um, maybe a birthday party. But what I do remember is getting inside my mother's car with that balloon, making it all the way home, and going out into the front yard. Because when we got home, Mom went inside, and I stayed outside holding the hand of my newfound friend. We then played catch. I ran around the yard and that balloon chased after me. And then I would stop and the balloon would stop short and then go up in the air like it hadn't been chasing me. And then I found I could hold my buddy and put my arm around its round shoulder. And then I found I could do something that was really fun. I could put the balloon under my hand and it would stay there. And then I would push it toward the ground. It would come back up. I'd push it toward the ground, it would come back up. Now I was a basketball player. I was dribbling with my balloon. I found that I could even move around the yard, pushing it ahead of me, running layups. And then I could send the balloon around my back or even between my legs. And then I found that I could commit turnovers. The balloon slipped past my hand, and when I tried to grab the string, it slipped through my fingers, and then a center court jump wouldn't help. The balloon got away, and I was disappointed. But my disappointment didn't last long. It turned to fascination as I watched the red balloon go up and up and drift away. How high, how far was this balloon going to go? Full of energy as I normally was, I remained motionless, watching that balloon for many minutes, watching my friend show the kind of courage and sense of adventure which I possessed only in my fantasies. I remained standing there until the tiny red dot disappeared. I knew it would land somewhere, but not here. That memory could be, for many, a parable of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Because as far as a surface reading of the story goes, it is sort of accurate. It parallels it pretty well. But as for a theological reading of the story, it falls short. The problem is, is that this surface level of the story is just so interesting. It's so fun and vivid that it's hard not to get stuck. The question, did Jesus really go straight up into the sky, leads us down the wrong path, whether or not your answer ends up being yes or no. The debate about why someone standing on a round earth that itself revolves around a star would have to rise up to heaven as if heaven has some zip code up there above the clouds is a debate that takes time and yields nothing of what Luke is trying to offer. I do not think a half century after the fact that the author of Luke is trying to make the point that it really happened just like that. 
The author has a theology to teach here, and he's doing it through story, narrative theology. Now, to get to the theology of narrative theology, you have to get through the narrative. You have to know the story. So let's remember what happens in the passage. Let's remember or review the surface reading of the story, which my escaped balloon is something of a parable. To set it up, let's remember that we've just returned from intermission. What I mean by that is that by telling the Gospel of Luke, we have already heard one act of the story, and we're about to hear or enter into the second act of the story, the story of the Acts of the Apostles. Act 1, Luke. Act 2, Acts. Because the author is one and the same, and I'll refer to him as Luke from now on. Our story, our passage, introduces the second act. And this means that there are going to be themes introduced here that will be carried forward throughout the rest of the story of the early church. In Act 1, the Gospel of Luke, we watched all that Jesus said and did and how he grew close to his disciples. And then at the end of Act 1, there was that terrible crucifixion. And then the amazing and shocking resurrection. Jesus, released from the grave, reunited with his disciples in a room in Jerusalem. And then in the first few verses of our passage, the introduction to Act 2, we have that previously in the story being told, as we often see in episodes, we get a recount of what happened in the Gospel of Luke. And we are told that Jesus came back after the resurrection and he was able to spend 40 days 40 gift days, days that they did not know that they would have with Jesus ever again. They're given these days with him before he goes away. And then, not knowing he is about to leave, they take a Sabbath day's journey out from the city, climb a mountain together until there is no place left to go but back down again. And when the disciples go back down, they want to take Jesus with them. He is within their grasp, and they do not want to let him go. They have more questions to ask him, like, when will Jerusalem be restored to its former glory with all the political and economic power that it once had? When will mighty Israel be restored again? But Jesus does not go back down with them. He goes up. Jesus gives them some more instructions that they learn are his parting words, and then he rises above them. How high? How far is he going to go? How long will the disciples be able to stand there and watch until he becomes a dot that disappears in the clouds? They won't be able to see where he lands, but they'll know it'll be somewhere else, not here. Heaven itself? And then two white-robed men, angels, appear to them. They ask, why are you looking up? Go home. Go home to Jerusalem. Jesus will return just as you saw him leave. And that is what they do. They go down the mountain and return home. And there in an upper room, they wait. They wait with other followers of Jesus, men and women. They wait and pray for the Spirit to come as Jesus promised, or Jesus to come as the men in white promised. 
They return home where they and their community of followers can be of service if only the Holy Spirit will come to them. Up, down. Leave, return. Those are the directions that we heard in the story, describing the geography of the story. But are these details of geography Luke's greatest concern? Well, maybe if Luke had been there, maybe if he had been an eyewitness, maybe if he writes this story as soon as he gets back down the mountain, as soon as he gets back home and can find quill and parchment, maybe then he would write the story to get it all down so he can record everything that happened before he could forget. And I imagine that if he did that, this story that he tells would have the tone of the tried and true Southern way to begin a story. Y'all are not going to believe this. And who knows? I mean, maybe it really did happen just the way Luke wrote it. Even this being a half century after the fact, even with most, if not all, of the disciples and eyewitnesses gone, maybe the stories were passed down in such a way that Luke gets it just right. Maybe Jesus departed from the disciples in the only way that Human beings can understand it and see it. I mean, if God is going to show us something, after all, we can only see what we are able to see. But I don't know. I wasn't there. What I am certain about is this. In writing his sequel to the gospel, Luke's primary, his priority, isn't telling people what happened. It's telling them the meaning of what happened. When he crafted his two books, he had all these stories and all these materials and accounts about Jesus and the early church in front of them, and he took his time. He could pick and choose what he would tell. He was careful how he ordered the stories. He was careful how he told the stories so that he could offer an effective witness to the good news of Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus working in and through the early church. His books founded on a real life and real happenings, are also literary masterpieces. And so, having the whole of Act Two in mind, he tells his story to introduce the direction this sequel is going to go, and he raises themes that will be carried all the way through to the end of the story of the early church. Now, keeping in mind that we are reading a literary masterpiece, I want you to consider a common literary technique that I think is key to understanding the meaning of the story we are looking at. It is the literary technique of irony. We see irony used in three well-known movies. In The Wizard of Oz, as the characters ask for things they already have within themselves, the wizard gives them objects, the scarecrow a diploma, the lion a metal, the tin man a heart pen, surface items that anyone can see, but the real intelligence and courage and love are hidden within the three. In the play No Exit, three characters try to work together to escape hell, and then they realize that hell is each other. 
And then in It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, yearning to find a better life elsewhere, learns that his greatest life is home with his family and his community. Our passage tells of Jesus rising, leaving, rising to heaven, but the whole rest of Acts is about Jesus living and moving here on earth. Yes, body gone, but yes, also spirit present. So here at the beginning, it is not so much that Jesus is going up, it's that Jesus is going everywhere. And the rest of the story is about just that. The story is also about the fact that Jesus doesn't belong to Israel or any one nation being everywhere. The earliest audience for the story couldn't miss this message, and neither should we. For look at what the disciples asked Jesus before he leaves. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, yes, they want Israel to be a just and holy nation, a place where followers of God can live out their best lives, but this is also a question about political and economic power. That's clear with Jesus' answer. He says, yes, they will receive power, but it will be the power of the Holy Spirit. And while this power will first come to you in Jerusalem, The Spirit will propel you beyond the capital city, out into all of Judah, and into neighboring Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And it is precisely then, after Jesus says this, that he rises from them, as if to demonstrate that he is not, nor ever will be, in their grasp, or in the grasp of any nation or agenda. The spirit of Jesus will return and work wonders, and if they want to be with that spirit, they will want to keep up. Keeping up is the final theme that I will mention because that is what the followers of Jesus are going to have to do the whole rest of the book of Acts. You could call the Acts of the Apostles the 2020 chapter of church history, maybe, because it's the story of a church having to adapt and reinvent itself over and over again in order to keep up with Jesus' Spirit as it moves exactly as Jesus told the disciples that the Spirit would move. First, Jerusalem. The Spirit comes powerfully to the upper room where Jesus' followers are gathered. The Spirit excites their hearts, loosens their tongues, and drives them out into the streets to lead massive demonstrations, giving witness to the better way of God's love. Then in chapter 8, Philip becomes the primary witness as the Holy Spirit moves through him to preach and work wonders in Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 9, Saul has his conversion experience and moves from being the prosecutor of Christians to becoming the emissary of Christ. And the whole rest of the book tells of his missionary journeys to the ends of the earth, or what is known of the earth anyway, even to Rome, the capital of the empire from which Israel would love to be free. And so over these coming Sundays, As we make the journey through the Acts of the Apostles, watching followers scrambling to keep up with the Holy Spirit and having to adapt attitudes and practices along the way, our hope, the preacher's hope, 
is that we can learn fresh and powerful truths about being the church that tries to keep up with the Holy Spirit in our day. And we think in choosing this sermon series that maybe right now we at Second Presbyterian can hear this church in a unique way. I mean, after all, we've had an ascension experience of our own. Well, not a great one, one imposed on us. Our congregation has been largely lifted from these church facilities, and we're having to carry on our life outside the walls of the church facilities. Maybe now we can think freshly about what our return to these facilities will be like. And in the meantime, maybe we can think freshly about what it means to be the church out beyond the walls and out in our world. Such as in Jerusalem, our Jerusalem, in the neighborhoods around us, including ministries like the Presbyterian Community Center, Ram House, Family Promise and Habitat, including our being involved in causes to make our community better. And then maybe beyond our community through the rest of the nation, then maybe beyond our nation's borders to the Dominican Republic, in fact, to the ends of the earth that include all nations that are contending for the kind of power that the disciples first asked to return to Jerusalem. And maybe because we are a congregation that has been lifted from our church facilities and are waiting, if not for Jesus, at least for ourselves to return to this place, we can hear the story of a blessing of our witness right here in Roanoke. By following the Holy Spirit, maybe we can witness to the greater way of justice, peace, and reconciliation, which are reflective of God's kingdom that knows no boundaries, a kingdom that is not really up there, but anywhere where God's Spirit is at work. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.